Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Nick Hawkins. I'm currently uh, with the Robotics and Autonomous Systems Group of the CSIRO, which is the Australian Government Research Agency. I should give the sort of standard disclaimer that the things that I say in this podcast are my views alone. I do hope to provoke listeners to think and possibly differently from how they have done before. Um, I have an unusual background for someone working in robotics in that I'm a veterinary surgeon. I also have an MSc in evolution, AI and neuroscience and a PhD in mechanical engineering and materials science, which gives me a perspective that's otherwise relatively hard to obtain. I know the material properties and the mechanical structure of vertebrate bodies from my professional training and experience as a surgeon. But I can also describe this in terms of material science and mechanical engineering, and also in terms of morphogenetics and information theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my work centers on the modeling, perception, and specification of complex fiber-elastic and fluid soft matter related to building and controlling robots for grounding of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. That sounds impressive. You have a lot of expertise, and that's intriguing, yeah. So. I would like to ask you what was the first robot or first robot you built and what the feeling you what was the feeling you had at this time? While I did lots of model building and engineering both as a child and as a teenager, my first robot components were built during my PhD. Uh, these were a series of exploratory prototypes of hands and paws. Um, these were for developing the materials and layup techniques to emulate musculoskeletal and dermal structures and mechanisms. They were brightly colored and made out of plastic, but when the soft tissue structures were added to the pole, quite a few people found that sensation of, of, of touching it quite surprising. Um, it was you know, a lot like a, a real pole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I ask you, um, what kind of robot resonated to you when you were a child? Was it scary to you or creepy maybe, if you remember? Um, I never really found robots in real life um, to be creepy. Um, when when watching movies, you know, different rules apply. But in real life, I see a material object, a mechanical structure that passively obeys physical laws. Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to Myra's Uncanny Valley, um, it's clear to me that what concerns people is the ability to tell if the object or agent is a threat to them. Mm-hmm. There are two things that matter. One, does it have the capacity to harm me? And two, is it likely to harm me? Particularly if it has free will, does it intend to harm me? Um, the more an object um, appears to be potent and capable of overpowering us, the more urgent it is um, to determine if it poses a, a risk to us. This applies also in our relation with, with people and animals. Uh, we constantly look for signals from the other person or animal of what their intentions are towards us. Uh, and the absence of reassuring non-aggressive behavior is actually alarming. Um, there are some famous 
movie scenes that demonstrate this. Uh, for example, in the, the climax of the film Blade Runner, where the, the robot Roy Batty, played by Rutger Hauer, is transformed from being a, a terrifying killer to a tragic hero. As we gain insight into his motives and realize that his actions were to save the lives of his friends from the aggression of others. This shows us that it's not the outward appearance, but the inference that can be made from it that matters. It follows that if robots are to be highly capable and perceived as good, then people need to be able to reliably understand the robot's perspective, to read its intentions and to communicate with it to ensure that no threat is posed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting perspective. Uh, so if I ask you while you're working, what is the most beautiful and profound equation that inspires you? I would say um, it's, it's two things. It's, mm -hmm. it's the Church-Turing thesis on universal computability and Walpert and McCready's no-free-lunch theorems. Taken together, these two prove both the possibility and the limits of intelligence, both artificial and natural. Yeah. If I ask you, since you have this old expertise and you how you would define soft robotics from your perspective? Because you have working in biological systems and then the material science, it sounds really nice combination. So how you would define it while you have these experiences? Okay, so so my, my definition for soft robotics is, is any robot component making substantial use of non-rigid materials in its mechanism. Mm -hmm. and, and what do you think what could be the most uh, important questions that uh, the community we have to consider while working in software robotics? Um, for, for me, the most important question is reverse engineering the working examples that we have available mm -hmm. in nature, yeah. because it's, it's the abilities of animal bodies and animal minds that prove what is possible within the, the laws of mathematics and physics and inspire robotics. The fundamental technique of reverse engineering is to reproduce the materials and parts with sufficient precision that the duplicate system assembled from them reproduces the function of the original. Um, when emulating anatomical mechanisms, this means reproducing the fiber topologies, the fiber elasticity, the matrix viscoelasticity, and the 3D curved geometry. Every mechanical parameter is reproduced as it would be for a simulation of sufficient resolution to predict the behavior of the mechanism. From such a point within the envelope of viable parameters, you can then explore the effect of variation to better understand the mechanism. Now, some roboticists like to claim that it's not known how, to, how, how bodies work at a material and mechanical mm -hmm. level. Um, however, very few of them would submit to being operated on by a surgeon not trained in anatomy. We must acknowledge the anatomical sciences. These are anatomy, histology, pathology, and surgery. They provide us with a nearly exhaustive model of vertebrate bodies at a material and mechanical level. Anatomy shows us the geometry uh, and compositional proportions that vary over the life of an individual, between individuals of the same species and between different species. Pathology shows us all the variations that can then break the mechanism, while surgery shows us the changes that can restore function to broken anatomy. 
Together, this gives us a lot of information about the viable design space. Histology is the study of tissues. And this shows us that anatomical tissues are all fibrous composites. They're made from a small palette of base materials. And these base materials have similar properties to available commodity polymers. For example, um, polyamide fibers, uh, rigid thermoplastics, thermoplastic elastomers, and elastomer gels. Um, these synthetic materials allow a layup of composites that emulate the material and mechanical properties of anatomical tissues. Mm-hmm. With these emulated tissues, it is then relatively straightforward to reproduce the mechanisms of ligamentous joints, tendon networks, dermal structures, um, such as hands, paws, hooves, and critical joints such as the wrist, ankle, knee, and elbow. Roboticists also have too little appreciation so far um, of the structure of the skin, the role of dermal ligaments, skin creases, finger pads, fingernails, all of which are essential to function and are relatively easily reproduced. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very interesting point. And I would like to ask you about the little appreciation of the structure of the skin. Do you think it just comes down to um, that we need to study or understand how uh, stuff like skin working in in our life as a human being you think it's it's come down to lack of understanding and maybe we're doing stuff which is not really functional uh, as we expect because we don't understand do you think that's issue of not uh, really well, studying I, I think that if if you if you look in the right places, you will find that much of the knowledge is already known. Mm. Um, the, um, yeah, the, the the anatomy of the skin is known in in almost complete detail um, from, you know, from 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 things that you can dissect at sort of millimeter scale down through the microscopic scale. Yeah. Uh, we know the the material properties. We know the materials that they're composed of in the biological system. Mm. Um, but because we know the material properties, we don't have to use those same um, you know, biochemically synthesized proteins and and polyglycans and so on. We can use synthetic materials that produce the same mechanical properties. Um, There has been significant work um, done by, for example, um, uh, um, uh, Vincent Hayward, uh, or Vincent Hayward, he sounds like a very English name. In fact, he's he's French and he's based in Paris, does a lot of work on the, the, the mechanics of the skin um, with a strong focus on how it could be applied in robotics. So the information is there, but you have to go and find it. Yeah. So if I ask you, what is the most inspiring living creature from your perspective? Um, I, w- I would pick three, possibly. Um, the, the first is the hands of any vertebrate, but especially humans. Uh, by comparison, all robot hands and end effectors are, are far less capable um, at both as a sensory organ mm-hmm. and as a, you know, as a manipulation tool. Um, second would be the bowel plans, it's the, the, the body plans of the major animal clades, so vertebrates, arthropods, and mollusks. Um, and they, the strikingly small number of parameters that are required to produce all the different adaptations to different niches. Um, for example, the 
the diverse reapplication of vertebrate hands, which first emerged in the Devonian tetrapod fish and have since become wings and flippers and paws and hooves. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the, the third uh, would be the Etruscan shrew, uh, which has the smallest mammalian brain, um, and it's also one of the smallest mammals. Um, and the reason why is because it provides an upper bound on the minimum neuron count required for this class of brain, to which our own brain also belongs. This shows how little computing power would be required to create intelligent behavior. Mm. That's an interesting one. The third one, uh, the computing power. I, could you please elaborate more how this could be inspiring for computing power? Because I think that's... Um, well, well, okay, so the, the, the Etruscan shrew is this tiny, tiny mammal. It's about, about the size of the last joint of an adult's thumb, okay? Mm -hmm. So that the brain is you know, a few cubic millimeters, which means that it's very, very much smaller brain than a human's, but it actually has the same fundamental architecture. It's, yeah. it, it's got the same basic mechanisms there, um, you know, primary spatter-sensory cortices, um, primary motor cortices, it's got action selection in the basal ganglia, um, it's got um, you know, integration of the, uh, of the perception happening in, uh, in the hippocampus in the short-term and working memory. And this animal you know, it is highly capable mm -hmm. little mammal that, that hunts various sort of uh, arthropod prey and so on, but it forms a nest and it has social life and it, it cares for its young and all of that. So the, this ability to understand the world and to take action, um, using an architecture very similar to our own brain, um, can actually be built in a brain that's so, so small and has you know, a, mm -hmm. a modest number of neurons in it. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's very impressive, yeah, an example. So, if I ask you what is the most mind-blowing and scary self-robot you have ever seen? Uh, well, I would, I would say that I'm, I'm not really scared or, or mind-blown um, by, by any software robots because mm -hmm. I always look at the mechanisms of machines um, and animals and physical nature. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the most significant results for me was the IIT PISA soft hand, uh, which was led by Professor Antonio Bicchi. Uh, this demonstrated that an extremely robust single synergy hand could be made and could perform a surprising range of manipulation when operated by a human. Mm. Now, this shows the importance of perceiving and understanding the soft matter physical properties of objects for the planning and control of the manipulation. Mm. So you, you have to put these things together and then you can get this in fantastic performance. Yeah. Could you please tell us more about your research work in soft robotics? Okay, so the the first soft robotics related work that I did was the structure of the human fingertip. The simulation demonstrated uh, the the appearance of finger fingertip contact on the somatotopic map um, in the in the brain and the role of structure and material properties in generating the somatic sense sensation. Um, this showed the value of emulating the structure of the finger pad and the fingernail for tactile perception in robotic hands. 
After that, I started work on the material and mechanical emulation of the human hand. Uh, it was clear that existing robot hands, both hard and soft, were nowhere near the, the strength, the robustness, the sensitivity and dexterity of human hands. And that this is a critical roadblock for robotics and for embodied intelligence. It was also apparent that the engineers developing robot hands did not have the understanding of anatomy that comes from experience as a surgeon. Um, so the, the task in, in, in doing this um, was principally classical reverse engineering and a lot of exploration of materials. There was a lot of polymer material science that I had to learn. Um, the result was a palette of materials and layout techniques to build functional ligamentous joints, tendon networks, dermal structures, um, for example, uh, the passive components uh, of the hands. Um, and there's also a clear path for making the active components, which would be the, the muscles and the nerves, uh, to a level that would approximate anatomical function. Uh, alongside this, I also work on soft matter modeling and perception because these are needed both to design anatomical robots and to make, make use of their sensory motor abilities. In 2014, I organized a Europe-wide meeting in London uh, on vision for language and manipulation. And there are still videos of that uh, up online. It was uh, under the auspices of the uh, BMVA, which is the British Machine Vision Association. Mm -hmm. um, currently, I'm working on a number of things. Um, the first of which is evolvable parameterization for the design of soft robots uh, based on emulation of the process of morphogenesis in animals. Um, and then uh, in, in support of that, I'm doing uh, large-scale smooth particle modeling um, on graphics processors of millions of particles in real time. Um, so this will be the basis of soft matter modeling generally, uh, simulation of morphogenesis, automated design of soft robots, and also for uh, multi-sensor fusion for soft matter perception. It's kind of a, a keystone technology. Uh, that brings all those things together. Um, later this year, depending on the disruptions of uh, COVID-19, I hope to be working on uh, bulk microelectromechanical um, prototypes of actuators, particularly uh, well, the muscle-like actuators and also um, somatosensory hardware and arthropod exoskeletons. These will use uh, um, lift-off processing of flexible polyamide substrates and they will exploit uh, differential contraction of the layers uh, for the self-assembly at the end of it. That's interesting. And I think many have questions, maybe we'll have questions about this point, in particular about modeling, because it sounds very interesting that how you have to learn about a lot of polymer material science. And first the question is, how you can make sure that the material you're working is, is meeting your expectation in terms of the mechanical performance or other properties you're looking for. But I, I, as far as we know, there is shortage in getting the required force and strain, for example, in, in some kind of polymer, like any conductive polymer, for instance. But the question that comes first here, how you can make sure that you select the right material? 
Uh, well, <laughs> if you if you look at my uh, PhD thesis, I sort of actually laid out the the, the iterations that mm. I made and the assessments that I made. Um, the the first thing is you do have to have a direct tactile experience of what the right thing feels like. So you you, mm. you have to have done dissection so that you know what the material you're trying to emulate actually behaves like. Um, and it has to be fresh dissection that's not preserved tissues. Um, so th this then means that you, you discover that these materials have you know, quite surprising properties. They're not like the things you normally handle because they are often a lot more elastic and softer, um, particularly the um, what is known as the areola loose connective tissue um, that lies between everything else and tends to get ignored, but is kind of critical because without it, nothing can move. Um, it basically is what lubricates the movement of the body. Um, and in fact, we do have materials that are that soft. If you think of um, hyperelastic gels, um, so most people have a little bit of experience of um, silicone gel, which is sometimes used as a potting agent in electronics. Um, it's also used um, for um, various soft objects that we use. The most well-known, I think, is possibly um, prosthetic uh, breasts for people that have had um, mastectomy um, for, for cancer. Um, so these are the, the very soft um, gels. Um, there are also thermoplastics, uh, th thermoplastic elastomer gels that are as soft as that, but have the advantage of being thermoplastic, which helps you to uh, manipulate them for laying up and so on. Um, so to understand um, what is the material properties that are actually required, so understand that the in the anatomy, the material properties actually vary across an order of magnitude um, within each component. Um, so tendons may vary in stiffness by an order of magnitude. But that doesn't actually matter because they differ from their surrounding tissues by orders of magnitude. So th these are not differences that you need an instrument to measure. Um, if, if you look at an object, you can tell immediately whether that's you know, a gram in weight or a kilogram in weight. Um, and likewise, if it's... Um, you Mega uh, um, megapascals of, of stiffness or kilopascals of stiffness, you can tell by handling it. Um, but the problem is, yes, to, to find a suite of materials that both have the necessary mechanical properties and can be laid up together, so it's so a layup technique. Um, and that's what led me um, down the road to, um, to using thermoplastics rather than using um, thermoset um, polymers such as the silicones. Um, originally, I, I tried um, laying up structures um, with the, with fibers laid in you know on the surface of something, and then applying um, silicone to it, either in a mold or or um, on a free surface. And the problem with that approach is that the fibers move, and your your control of the layup is very very poor. Um, Whereas if you use a thermoplastic, um, you can have the same mechanical properties. You can have you know, an extremely soft um, elastomer that will stretch 10 times its rest length um, and is so soft that when you touch it, you can't feel it because it's softer than the fat pad in your tip of your finger. So 
it doesn't deform when you touch it. So, so you, you, your finger doesn't deform mm -hmm. when you touch it, and therefore you get no tactile sensation, uh, which is a, a, a strange experience when you first feel it. Um, another important problem was anchoring these fibers because the, the, the point of having fibers in the structure is they're going to bear a lot of um, tensile forces, mm -hmm. but they need to actually connect to things. Um, and you know, originally I tried casting fibers into things and having them protruding out. And this is actually really cack handed um, because how do you set up a mold where the fibers can come out, but the material you're casting into the mold don't come out. Um, and the thermoplastic approach was, was much better than that. For, for, for that, we found thermoplastic, um, a rigid thermoplastic, um, polycaprolactone, um, and um, it has a low melting point, only about 60 mm. degrees Celsius. Um, so you can actually handle it um, in the molten state, so long as you don't heat it up much more than 60 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. uh, and meanwhile, the fibers that we were using principally um, um, polyamide fibers, so nylon, that was actually um, obtained by unweaving a climbing rope, um, because what you need is those straight parallel fibers, not twisted, not braided, um, that are in the core of the fiber, uh, core of the climbing rope. Um, and they have pretty much the same um, you know, tensile stiffness and strength as collagen, which makes them um, a very good substitute for a tendon because you've got the same parallel fibers um, there uh, in the tendon as you do in the climbing rope. And you've got that same um, elasticity in the in the high load bearing um, tendons, which helps to prevent um, damage, prevents things from reaching the the yield stress where the where the fibers would break. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and there's a question about the, mod the role of modeling and simulation in that case uh, for predicting the properties. How do you see, um, realistically speaking, modeling and simulation? And and I think you're using already a larger scale modeling. I, I don't know if it comes down at the part of molecular dynamic simulation, or is different. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't go down as fine as, as molecular simulation. Um, but one of the, the handy things about um, particle-based modeling is that um, it is actually relatively intuitive to, to think of the behavior similar to molecules, but it's a at orders of magnitude larger scale. Mm -hmm. So um, if you have you know, a million particles um, in your simulation, and you imagine that sort of arranged um, as a cube to think of how large an object can I um, simulate and at what resolution? Well, if you have um, the, 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 the centimeters um, along the side of a meter, um, okay, so you have 100 times 100 times 100, um so if if you think of a um a cube mm -hmm. that is um a, a, a cubic meter um and particles that are one centimeter in size if you fill that cube with particles you have a million particles um so that's kind of the resolution uh, that you could achieve likewise if you were thinking of an object that's the size of um 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters per centimeter so it's a liter volume then the particle resolution would be one millimeter um, now, we can actually get several millions of particles running on a, on a single GPU. Um, if you have a multi-GPU workstation, then um, if the code is a bit more sophisticated and, and divides the load across 
the mm. GPUs, you can move up to um, tens or even um, hundreds of millions of, of GPUs, uh, of particles, if you're working um, with several large um, modern GPUs, and potentially a step further if you move up onto a cluster. Um, so this gives you an idea of the resolution that you can get. Um, the other thing is that there are techniques for splitting and combining particles so that you use large chunky particles in the areas where you don't need fine spatial detail. And then you use smaller ones where fine spatial detail is needed. And that then saves you um, a, lot of, um, a lot of particles in the number that you require to build a model of a given resolution. Mm -hmm. And then there are a few more techniques in terms of having ellipsoidal particles that can either be um, sort of uh, flattened corpuscle shaped uh, ellipsoids or elongated um, um, spindle-shaped ellipsoids, um, which can then be used for, for sheets and fibers and so on uh, as needed. So depending on how sophisticated mm. um, you go, you can get a bit more, um, bit more spatial resolution out of the simulation. Um, so yeah, it, it does always matter that the, um, the the fundamental computer science of writing very good parallel code for the GPU mm -hmm. um, is done very well. You have to think about data flows. You have to think about um, the the computational cost of sorting the particles. Now, this is very important because the key advantage of a particle simulation is that it does collision and it does uh, both um, fluid flow and plastic flow um, much more readily than other bases of simulation, such as finite element or, or mm -hmm. discrete element um, and um, finite difference simulations. Yeah. Uh, there are always trade-offs between them. Uh, there's, there's no one that is fundamentally uh, superior, but there are um, useful advantages in a particle-based simulation. I think it's very interesting because I have a question about the, the simulation um, perspective, about micro or meso or macro, because I think if we think about the technology, if the project is technology driven or um, product driven, do you think mm -hmm. still it's relevant to if you go into product level, you go for direction of uh, microscopic simulation? It, it, it um, seems it's very it, it's very expensive. Uh, so, so you wouldn't be doing microscopic simulation of anything more than very small volumes mm. um, at, at, at any time that you are building a model what you need to ask is what is the information that i need to get out of this model mm -hmm. and therefore what is the resolution that i need in the model both both temporal resolution and spatial resolution and where and when in the model um, if you think about um, human perception for example um, our eyes are intensely foveated. If, if you stare at one spot and then try to work out without moving your eyes the detail of things around you, you realize that actually you've only got that fine resolution in one little tiny focused spot at, uh, at the fovea of your eye. Um, and likewise, your attention is very, very focused. And the reason is that even with a process of the size of a human brain, um, resources are limiting and you have to work out how to use them most efficiently. And generally what this means is that there is um, a focus of attention, which is where detail is required. Um, and that focus may skip backwards and forwards. Um, you see this in eye movement in, in, in tracking and circading. So tracking when it's 
um, fixated on an object and will follow that object, um, and then circadian when it jumps to to another object or a different point on that object. And essentially, um, we have to work this way because we will always have finite resources for uh, for, for computation, for for modeling, for perception, and so on. Mm. Um, and yeah, th this will be a pervasive feature of um, of efficient modeling, of efficient perception, and and so on. Mm -hmm. Great. So, if I ask you, what are the most misconception about of robotics in your experience? Uh, okay, so my my uh, my first um, con concern um, is about. Uh, failings of, of rigorous reasoning. Um, obviously, we've got, we've got a lot of excitement in, in soft robotics, mm -hmm. uh, but I think there's there's need to think about um, recognition of when mathematical proofs are required and the significance of a mathematical proof, mm -hmm. and also the correct formulation of and, and the use of falsifiable hypotheses and the empirical testing of hypotheses. Um, so, um, a mathematical proof is something that will tell you what is necessarily true from a set of axioms, which is very important when you want to make very broad general statements about the the kind of inference that um, that you can make from some information. Um, whereas the, the um, falsifiable hypotheses are about um, making inferences or or, or well-tested guesses about how external reality works rather than about how logic itself works. Hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a tendency for people to ape the appearance of rigor whilst missing the substance. Um, you see, you, you can have uh, tables of data and graphs and statistical tests, but none of these are actually necessary, nor are they sufficient for valid argument. Um, and it's very important that in whatever we read and whatever we write, yeah. we must always ask, what does this really prove? Mm. Uh, so moving on to my, my, my second concern is uh, the taboo against reverse engineering. There is a widely held false belief in robotics that you either could not or should not do reverse engineering. And it's important to realize that this is actually idiosyncratic to robotics and it's completely at odds with the reputation across engineering as a whole for the efficacy of reverse engineering as a way of learning a technology from a working example. There are numerous results, uh, numerous, numerous well-known examples of uh, technology being acquired in this way, both commercial and military. Um, and it always starts by directly copying everything that you don't yet understand. Um, now, sometimes this taboo is motivated with the claim that reproducing the anatomical tissues is too hard or it cannot be done. Now, this is actually a, a false claim, but mm -hmm. it's also important to recognize that it's also an example of the fallacy of argument from ignorance, which is where an investigator fails to solve a problem, so infers that the problem itself is impossible to solve. In reality, working emulations 
excluding the muscles and the nerves, can be laid up with a soldering iron and commodity materials. I've mentioned um, some of them, so we polycaprolactone as a way of uh, anchoring the fibers and uh, polyamide fibers um, in place of, of, of collagen in, in ligaments and tendons. And um, SEBS is the, um, the thermoplastic elastomer that um, can be made into a gel that is as elastic and as, as soft as any of the silicone gels um, and so on. Now, working out how to do these things required collating information from anatomy and from polymer material science. Now, my, my final concern then moving on to the, the ignorance of anatomy. You can't learn anatomy without substantial experience of dissection of fresh tissues. Mm. Um, and for, for this reason, I would say that soft robotics labs need to hire a proportion of their graduate students with significant professional experience in surgery. But those, those same individuals must also have the mathematical aptitude required to learn computational engineering and information theory, which they will need to combine with their anatomical knowledge. Um, for robotics, veterinary anatomy has the important advantage of covering several different species, which gives better perspective on what is possible. Um, whereas human anatomy uh, has a particular disadvantage that um, access to dissection is highly restricted. Mm. So you probably wouldn't get access to human anatomy for robotics, but you'd readily get access to veterinary anatomy and you could learn the same things from it and more. I think it's a very beautiful argument and concern as well. And do you think that it comes down to what? Why do you think there's a shortage in particular? In, in our um, the, the, oh, there's, the, there's, two, there's two things. First is that um, who is it that learns anatomy? Mm. And the answer is very, very few people have reason to actually learn anatomy. Um, yeah, um, it's basically only people that are training to become um, yeah, medical practitioners or, 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 or veterinary practitioners of, of some form. Um, and really, it's only the ones that train to be surgeons that actually have much detailed knowledge of this. Um, and the, the time it takes in terms of you know, performing dissection um, and you know, learning how everything works and, and so on, you know, this is a lot of time. But it also there's a big sort of social thing where, where um, other people wouldn't go near it because it's it, you know, it, it's icky it's it, it's dead bodies it's it's very squeamish making mm. um now um it's important to realize that although biologists know many things of great importance to what we might do in soft robotics most disciplines within biology don't involve um you know, dissecting a body then they're, they're, they're not generally involved with the anatomy of the body and only a very narrow sub-discipline of biologists would be, be dealing with that. Um, and then if we step back and we say, well, yes, but who, who are roboticists and who are, the, who are all the other people, um, all the other different professions, you realize that actually the people that will go and learn, uh, learn the anatomy and, and so on, separate from the engineers and the computer scientists whilst they are still in high school, because the ones who are going to become engineers and are going to become computer scientists who will then go on to become uh, roboticists or at least may do, um, will be focusing on maths and physics mm. in high school, 
Whereas the ones that are going to go and become um, medics and surgeons um, or, or uh, other disciplines of biology, um, they're going to be concentrating on biology um, and chemistry, um, but they're not going to be doing matrix algebra, they're not going to be doing advanced calculus and so on, because that's not used in medicine. So these two professions actually separate when pupils are still only about sort of 15 or 16 years old. Um, and this means that the two bodies of knowledge have grown up um, largely separate from each other. Um, and this means that when somebody comes up with a you know, mechanical engineering or mechatronics background, um, their expectation of materials mm -hmm. is essentially quasi-rigid materials. And they have not had enough hands-on experience of very soft materials and of the, the mechanisms of anatomy. And when they see it without having someone actually instructing them in it, they actually miss what is there. Um, they, 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 they sort of look at all the soft, soft, squishy, fibrous stuff and it's strange and they ignore it and they just seize on the, on the bones which are rigid and they're reasonably familiar and they work sort of approximately like the materials they're familiar to. Mm -hmm. um, and consequently they miss um, the, the, the real mechanism of anatomy. Um, it's very important to realize that the, the rigid bones in, in a vertebrate are actually not essential. Um, and if you, for example, shake the hand of a five-year-old child, what you will notice is that it's all kind of squishy and rubbery. Mm. And there's a reason why. If you, if you x-ray um, the, the hand and wrist of a five-year-old child, you'll see that the bones of their wrist um, and of, the, of their palm are still substantially cartilage and not yet um, calcified into rigid, mature bone. Um, and yet the mechanism is, is there, it's fully functional. It's not as strong, it can't, can't support the, uh, the compressive stresses that, that the later ossified hand will, will be able to. Um, but it very much works as a mechanism. Um, so yeah, there, there, there's these, um, these things that you have to, to yeah. learn. Um, and the, the, the crucial thing to understand is that you need hands-on tactile experience because you can't learn anatomy from reading a book or from mm. looking at models or, or um, sort of dissecting on a, um, on a um, where there's a problem in, in medical schools at the moment that they can't get human bodies. So mm. they, they use these um, digital dissection tables where they've got a CT scan of a body that's already been segmented and you, you just slide your finger across the surface of, of flat glass screen and you remove layers of tissue. And this doesn't tell you what is going on in terms of how things are connected, the yeah. three-dimensional uh, structure, the topology and so on. Um, and this has actually then caused a problem. They can't find enough qualified doctors in some countries um, to start training as um, surgeons because they're uh, learning of anatomy from this sort of digital anatomy fails because they don't have the, the tactile hands-on experience. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point and super interesting. And I think it's, I think maybe the problem more complicated about the funding issue and how to re recruit and this project as well. And I think it, it this point has been I think have to be taken seriously. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if you were trying to hire a human surgeon you know, to, to come and become a PhD student, then the, you know, the, the earnings loss for them is going to be 
enormous mm. if you're uh, because they have to have gone through their sort of you know, six-year training as a as a general medical mm-hmm. uh, doctor and then an additional um, four, five, even six years before they then qualify as a surgeon. Um, so they're you know, they're up to their ears in debt and they are expected to work extremely hard and fast you know, as surgeons. Um, whereas the veterinary surgeons um, qualify as surgeons after their basic um, six-year degree. Um, it is a double uh, degree, um, so it's much longer than an engineering degree, for example, but it's still just a single degree. And their earnings are a lot less than the human surgeons. So you'd yeah. much more readily recruit a veterinary surgeon um, who has plenty of surgical experience to come and study um, and, and be a PhD student than you would um, a human surgeon. Obviously, if you can find a human surgeon, then certainly um, take him. Um, but you're more likely to find veterinary surgeons. Yeah, you're right. So if I ask you, what are the biggest technological roadblocks for having follies of robotics? Uh, I would say that the f- there's probably three major ones. Um, the first is this mass sensory system. So for a robot to perceive the state of its bo- own body and its contact with the environment, um, it needs somatosensory sensation. And it needs to fuse this with its other senses in order to build up its perception, um, both of its own state and of its surroundings. Um, essentially, this implies uh, MEM sensors around 100 microns in size um, and signal carrying fibers that are sufficiently elastic to stretch with the tissues. Now, the reason why I say 100 microns in size is that that's actually the size of the sensory nerve endings um, you know, in your skin and um, in the ligaments and tendons and bones um, of your body. Um, it's not superbly microscopic. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were a different color from the surrounding tissues, you would actually be able to see them if your eyesight was sharp or if you just used a magnifying glass. Um, so they don't have to be super tiny, but it would be MEMS manufacturing. Um, and then because you're implanting these into soft tissues your connection needs to stretch with the tissues otherwise it will break um now we can see from animals that it's also important Mm -hmm. that the that the fibers which connect the sensors have to run in protected routes um if the signal fibers were to run superficially in the skin for example um, then local damage would cause loss of sensation over a large area um which would be like like having peripheral nerve damage in in a person or an animal it's actually quite debilitating if you lose sensation um, over your hand for example Um, the challenge is um so we 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 can make such sensors quite readily um uh, with existing micron scale mems techniques um given a suitable flexible polymer substrate such as polyamide which is one of the ones that's available um the challenge really is to develop a roll-to-roll process that can produce large quantities at low cost. Um, given such an array of sensors uh, in the tissues of the robot, it's then um, straightforward to collect the signals um, with a current self-organized map um, to produce the somatotopic image, um, which can then be fed into the perception of the physical environment, but then it, discussing how to do perception and so on, that's, that's another mm-hmm. discussion. Um, if I move on, uh, my, my second major technical roadblock is muscles. Mm. 
So most of the proposed artificial muscles are not really feasible candidates. And the reason for this is because the upper bounds of performance permitted within physical laws uh, for each of these classes of, of artificial muscle, this upper bound is not sufficient to meet the minimum performance required with respect to work per stroke per gram, power per gram, twitch speed, cycle uh, frequency, um, the useful strain, so, so the percentage contraction that it can produce, uh, the energy efficiency, or the material form is not suitable to be closely packed into a mobile robot. Mm -hmm. um, now, there do exist viable candidates. They are almost inevitably um, bulk MEMS devices um, and exploit small-scale effects that improve the performance of electrostatic actuators. Um, two examples are um, a device um, or an actuator known as the dual excitation multiphase electrostatic drive, uh, which was demonstrated in the 1990s um, to provide more than sufficient performance, but it needs to be um, feature scale reduced to create um, a, a macroscopically fibrous actuator such that it could be packed in and, and uh, you know, applied as a muscle system for a robot. Um, second example is a, a fiber-drawn version of the rolled dielectric elastoma actuator. Mm -hmm. Now, fiber drawing um, reduces the layer thickness, which then improves the performance um, and produces a fibrous actuator. Now, it's, it's very important that all the components of this be um, you know, elastic like rubber. Um, and this requires the synthesis of an intrinsically conductive thermoplastic elastomer for the electrodes. Um, the reason why you need to do that is the normal way of making a, a conductive elastomer would be to, to mix in some, some particles uh, that, are, that are conductive and rely on them um, for the conduction. So it might be carbon nanotubules or something else. Um, but the problem is that um, in very thin layers and under intense electrostatic fields, those nanoparticles would actually diffuse and the structure of your uh, actuator would, would break down. Um, therefore, you need to have um, an intrinsically conductive thermoplastic elastomer um, so, that it, so that it's the rubber itself that is doing the conducting, not the, the filler in the rubber. Mm -hmm. Um, now, such an elastomer requires new molecular mechanisms of elasticity. This is because conventional rubber relies on thermal entropy-based elasticity. And this isn't an option with conductive polymers because their conductive conjugated double bonds that run down the backbone um, of, of such a polymer um, don't allow rotation in the way single carbon bonds do. So you don't get the entropy-based um, sort of shortening of the polymer. Uh, you need to have a different way of making your, uh, your, your polymer chain um, stretchable. So you might actually make something that would look more like a molecular spring. Um, yeah. Uh, can I ask a question here? Because I think, I think this is very interesting point about, uh, you, you really had an amazing point about how we can improve the performance of this polymer, for example, as you said, that new mechanism. How would it really easy to, to achieve this point? Because I, I, as we know that 
it's still our in our studies we see in, in publication there's still limitation and we don't know when we can foresee reaching that desired mechanical performance so how we can make this new mechanism how it's about modeling understanding um um, well, okay, so the, the, the dual, electric, dual excitation multiphase electrostatic drive, uh, which was developed in, in Japan in the 1990s, yeah. um, that, that actually does have sufficient performance. It's just that um, the version of it that, it that exists and was demonstrated at the time it basically consists of um, A4 capped on sheets sitting um, in a tank of transformer fluid, and they slide back and forwards over each other. Mm -hmm. But this is far too chunky and um, it has to sit in this rigid tank um, so in that form you couldn't um, use it as an actuator um, you know, close packed around the, the limbs of a robot um, however if you reduce the feature scale down to sort of five to ten microns um, then the actual actuator um, could be made you know, a millimeter mm -hmm. or, 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 or narrower um, and you would have it um, set up as a chain of actuators, just like the um, the sarcomeres of a muscle fiber, um, but at you know, a slightly larger scale, but still fine enough scale uh, that what you have is a macroscopic fiber, and then you would encase it in a um, in an elastomer, um, so that what you've got is something which then looks a lot like yeah. um, individual muscle fibers that can then be laid up together in a bundle um, and connected to, to tendons and packed closely mm -hmm. around the limbs of a robot. Um, so in, in, in that case, it's mostly a matter of, of can you reduce uh, the scale and you know, this is easily within manufacturing um, in, in an ordinary uh, MEMS lab. Um, but at that point, you're making you know, one wafer of this and then rolling it up and getting one fiber um, and then repeating the process. What we need to do is to move that into a roll-to-roll -roll process um, so that you're manufacturing them as you know, in a manner more like how we manufacture um, the circuitry for a modern um, TFT computer screen, for example. Um, and if you can manufacture continuously, um, then you can actually manufacture enough that you can have a bulk of this actuator that can then form a muscle belly and so on. Um, so places you would use them initially would obviously be the, um, you know, the small muscles uh, of the hand where you need to have lots of different muscles for um, all the tendons that are required um, in the hand. Uh, you might also use them for muscles of facial expression if you're building um, humanoid robots with with faces that you wanted to be expressive um, larger things like like actuating the limbs you might not um, use a bulk mems actuator because you don't have so many things um, that you need to actuate so you don't need to have um, quite the same um, you know close packing of actuators and so on it depends mm -hmm. um, it depends partly on, on how successful we get at um, a roll-to-roll -roll manufacturing process uh, the fiber drawn uh, elastomer actuator um, if you think about um, uh, co-block polymer chemistry and graft chemistry and um, when people are doing um, chemistry in microfluidics, um, allowing them to control the process and so on, it's very much um, 
within the technical bounds of, of what could be uh, approached by a soft robotics project. Um, but they need to be working with a polymer chemistry lab um, and they need to be doing, uh, yes, molecular modeling so that you would predict what the behavior of the molecule was before you attempted to synthesize it. You would also mm -hmm. predict um, what it was that you required in order to be able to synthesize it, um, design your, your catalysts, synthesize those catalysts, set up the, the, the apparatus and then start synthesizing a polymer and then mm -hmm. test the polymer. Does it have the conductivity? Does it have the um, thermoplasticity so that you can um, draw it as a fiber? Does it have the elasticity? Then can you assemble your, your actuator and so on? Mm -hmm. but, but once you can synthesize such a polymer, then manufacturing um, your bulk MEMS actuators would become very easy and you could realistically have a robot that was actuated entirely with such things. Yeah. Um, so it, it's definitely within uh, the realms of what could be attempted by a project. Um, but you need to go and make contact with the correct um, specialists in um, polymer modeling exactly. and polymer synthesis. Yeah. So my, my third roadblock um, is the parameterization of design. Um, now, if you think about it, the, the potential space um, for design of soft robots um, is much too large to search, and it always will be. Um, a simple way of, of uh, grasping this is if you think of um, a volume um, with as many uh, fine voxels as is necessary to represent the scale of what you want to build, and then you allow that for each one of those millions of voxels, that each of their material properties could vary independently, then calculate what is the variety that could be um, expressed um, within that, that, that volume. You, you soon run it into a number that is far too large that for you ever to search efficient, um, tractably um, with any computational power that would ever be available to you. Um, however, most of that space is just noise and is very little use. Uh, and this is where information theory becomes very important. What we need is compact parameterizations that describe the things that make a working machine and a description that is um, much, much simpler and more compact than uh, the space of all possible arrangements of matter. Now, an optimally compact parameterization amounts to an algorithmic solution that takes you directly to the optimal design for a given range, range of tasks. And such parameterizations are synonymous with technologies. Finding such a compact parameterization is crucial. Mm -hmm. Now, <clears throat> there's a little studied problem in evolution known as Cuvier's objection. Georges Cuvier um, was a very famous, um, very important um, biologist at the beginning of the 19th century, so 60 years before Darwin, um, and contemporary with um, uh, Lamarck. Mm -hmm. um, um, now, Georges Cuvier claimed that evolution was impossible because any change would break the mechanism of the body. Now, obviously, this is false in biology, um, but how it is possible for Cuvier's objection to be false is what is important. In artificial evolution, um, Cuvier's objection is close to what we observe. What we get is entrapment in a local minimum and very little progress thereafter. 
And mathematically, this is what's actually expected in the majority of cases, um, as proven by the no free lunch theorems for learning and optimization. Cuvier's objection arises because there are parameters um, in the body that need to co-vary, um, essentially parts that need to fit together to make a working mechanism. Um, you know, the, the, the tendons and muscles need to match um, the length of the bones that they are uh, attached to. They need to um, have a contraction range that matches what is needed to move uh, the joints that they actuate, and so on. Um, and this is where um, the parameterization of um, biological morphogenesis is very interesting for soft robotics because it's an example that works very well. Um, we can have, you know, we, we, we can breed different animals and they, they, they vary in size and shape and strength and so on and they still work. Nearly all of the offspring that are born are functional, um, although they, their particular abilities may vary. Um, what they aren't is you know, broken with parts that don't fit together. Now, the key mechanisms of biological morphogenetics are um, basically four. The first is mutation of mutability. Um, and this locks down the genes whose variation is detrimental mm -hmm. while promoting mutation of genes that produce viable variations to the phenotype. Um, and this is the mechanism which creates the bowel plans of the animal clades. So the, the, the reason why all cats are, are you know, cat-like in their bodies, even mm. though they vary in size and strength and, and muscularity mm. you know, between, for example, a tiger and a cheetah and a domestic cat. Um, um, so the, 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 they still are mm. cats and they are different from dogs. The, the, the way in which they vary um, remains within a, a constrained set. Um, and this is because of the um, of most of the genes being locked down and, and just certain ones um, varying. Um, now, the, the, the second mechanism is epigenetic cell lines. These set up the identity of tissues and how they respond um, to signals, uh, both within morphogenesis um, and then um, later on in, in remodeling. So the, the third um, mechanism is the local anatomical coordinates, which are created by morphogen diffusion gradients. Uh, and these define the topologies that are then conserved under geometric variation. So if you think about the process of embryogenesis and morphogenesis, um, if you vary the size of the limbs, for example, um, the parts of the limbs vary with them, and the reason is because they're defined relative to local anatomical coordinates, not relative to um, the, um, you know, external coordinates, such that if you change the length of the limb, the muscles wouldn't follow with it, for example. Um, and then uh, the fourth um, the mechanism is remodeling on the environmental information, uh, notably mechanical forces. This ensures that all the parts are well matched and it also allows you to get more complex geometry than is specified by the genome alone. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, um, I mean, obviously, if, if you go to a gym and you train your muscles, 
this is what's happening. You're, you're, you're getting stronger. It's not just your muscles that get stronger. It's also the tendons, the ligaments, the bones all get stronger together in response to the mechanical forces. Um, also, in the process of you growing, everything is adapting and adjusting as you grow so that tendons remain the correct strength for the muscles that they're attached to, ligaments and, and joints and so on, again, remain um, the correct material composition so that they are hard enough but not too hard um, and so that they have sufficient strength. So, so this is very important in maintaining a working machine uh, in this body, um, both under genetic variation and under variation um, of experience during life. Uh, now, obviously, a robot isn't going to be remanufactured um, all the time, but in our designing of a robot we would be running it in simulation and we'd be working out how much material and which properties do, does that material require um, in each part and so on and hence we would use this within our design process um, to produce machines that work correctly i think this point is very amazing and inspiring as well and and that leads me to the question do you think at the research we fully understand the physics behind smart material and before going to that, because when we work in smart material, or for example in polymer specifically, you highlighted the biology aspect, and, and uh, as you have this kind of understanding, deep understanding, which I, I don't think many material scientists really know this background about biology. So when you're working with this kind of material in, in, in the lab, and you get certain result, and it just not really fully agree with the nature, and you're saying there's something wrong here. And you, 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 you fail to get explanation why this happened or how to prove that. So do you think we fully understand uh, the smart material behavior? Uh, well, I, I would say that the, you know, the, the laws of physics at the level of, of classical physics and quantum electron dynamics are enough for almost all the materials and mechanisms that you might build. But uh, the things that you might do with them are uncountably many. And if, if you did have to work your way up from a quantum mechanical model, then it would be very, very time consuming. Um, we use uh, quantum mechanical models for, for modeling uh, you know, a few bonds of a molecule at a time, uh, possibly during a reaction process, we tend to step up to intermediate levels of simulation relatively quickly just to maintain tractability. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, if you get an unexpected result, you sh should, as a scientist, um, treat this as uh, an opportunity for serendipity. Um, if you didn't expect the result, why didn't you expect the result? Um, is it because uh, you didn't actually think through your prediction correctly, or is there a problem with the model that you were using? Um, and do you need um, to make a modification to that model? Um, can you dig down into the causes of, 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 of why it behaved in an unexpected way? Can you predict over a wider range and so on? So um, there will be a lot of work to do in building those intermediate models that are, are practical and useful. Um, but you know, the, the basic physics itself um, is, is secure, um, but there's an awful lot of detail um, to be worked at in, in the intermediate levels. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you, what is intelligence from your robotics perspective? Well, 
intelligence is commonly defined as something like the ability to quickly learn how best to act in new circumstances. There are variations on this, um, uh, but, but this definition will suffice. Um, now, the no free lunch theorems for search and learning show that all such algorithms are equal to random search over the set of all problems. Therefore, there cannot be a universal intelligent algorithm. Uh, however, we consider ourselves to be intelligent and we're reasonably sure that um, you know, some other things could be as well, maybe you know, some of the animals and um, potentially some machines that we could make, um, especially given um, the, the church Turing thesis means that we should be able to emulate anything that already exists, mm -hmm. um, at least in terms of computation. Um, now, what this actually shows um, from, from the no free lunch algorithms is that embodiment is required to define the question that intelligence solves. The body defines the agent's location in the world and therefore it defines the environment of other things that may affect the agent. It also defines the agent's ability to sense its own state and its surroundings, uh, its ability to take physical action, its needs and vulnerabilities um, that may require it to take action. Um, note that in this sense, even something as abstract as an internet search engine has an embodiment that defines its interaction with the world. Um, it is the, the particular set of circumstances that makes certain actions right for the needs of the robot and provides the prior expectations for an algorithm capable of learning efficiently within this context. For most agents in the real world, either animal or machine, mm -hmm. this means primarily perceiving and acting within something close to the classical physics model of the macroscale world. This necessarily starts with the ability to perceive the agent's own body and the immediate environment, um, and the ends, uh, or, and, and, and the process, and ends with taking effective action for whatever goal may be appropriate for that agent. To reach this end implies being able to predict both future events in the external world and the effects of actions that might be taken. The agent's understanding of the world will involve the ability to recursively construct abstractions to make ever more efficient and accurate predictions about the world and its ability to cause effects in the world. These abstractions will give structure to its inference about the world and enable the combination of arbitrary sources of information from past experiences. It is crucial, however, that these abstractions always return to predictions about future sensory data. That is, the, the tangible effects that it will see, feel, or detect by some other primary sense. However, making such predictions alone is not enough. Mm -hmm. An intelligent agent must select sufficient actions and control the execution of those actions to meet its needs. So a fully intelligent agent requires a substantial degree of autonomy. Mm -hmm, great. So if I ask you to which level the current soft robotics intelligent or intelligent? Um, I, well, I, I would say not yet. Um, I think that at present the, the field is still in the earliest exploratory stage. 
um, soft robotics researchers are still working out which materials they can use, how to manufacture with those materials, and what mechanisms can be created. Some of those choices are still quite naive about the, what materials are available in industry and the manufacturing techniques that could be used. For example, um, we see a lot of silicon rubber being used. Uh, but in fact, this is the weakest major group of elastomers in terms of their tear strength. Um, we, we are starting to see fiber elastic mechanisms which depend upon fiber topology in, in elastomer matrix. Um, but these are being made at present with resin transfer molding. That's where you, you lay the fibers, um, clamp them in place in the mold, close the mold, and then inject the, um, the resin, which will become the, the, the elastomer. Um, the problem with it is that the fibers tend to move and you, you can't get um, the positioning that you, would, you might wish to have. Um, this provides you know, much less control of fiber placement, for example, than fiber toe laying um, with a thermoplastic elastomer matrix, where um, if you have, um, say, a polyamide or polyaramide fiber and you have an SEBS gel matrix or a uh, polycaprolactone matrix um, and you can melt the matrix without melting the fibers, you can apply it um, at the point where you want it to, uh, to be attached into the structure and as soon as it cools it's fixed and if you need to adjust it you can warm it up again and move it. Um, so your, your ability to control fiber placement um, in this way is much better than it is with the resin transfer molding. Um, but as people learn to use uh, better materials that enable more control in manufacturing, um, then we'll see more subtle and refined mechanisms. Um, in this regard, um, soft robotics has a lot to learn from, from polymer and composites material science. I've just mentioned a, f uh, a few of the things there. Um, for example, um, laying uh, complex composites where fibers pass through multiple matrices, both hard and soft. Um, this depends on the intermolecular bonding between the matrix and the fibers, um, and having fibers with a higher melting point than the matrix. Um, but it allows the layup of complex hard and soft mechanisms, um, such as the ligamentous joints and the tendon networks, um, which allow us to have things like um, a human wrist, for example, um, and the, the flexible palm um, and the, the, the very robust and yet slender fingers um, that we have. Great. So uh, I would like to ask you what are the current challenges that you want to solve? Okay, so, so um, the, the first that I think we need to solve is the evolvable parameterizations and automated design. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the, the second would be uh, muscle-like actuation. Having a synthetic actuator that matched the properties and performance of skeletal muscle would greatly increase what we can do in robotics. Uh, then the third one would be a smatter sensory system, both the hardware and the perception. Once we have all of those three, um, then um, we could start to make progress towards embodied artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting if you can tell us what how you envision artificial general intelligence and software works. Uh, okay, so I mean, you would need um, you need a, a body that has um, sufficient smart sensory perception, sufficient um, motor abilities mm -hmm. um, that it can 
you know, interact in, in a useful way, but then you also need to build up um, the, the software that builds on that. Um, it starts with the, um, the, the primary senses and, 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 and perception from them, and then goes into the, uh, the, the fusing of multiple senses into a single uh, perception of the physical world, which then supports um, perception of um, basically the semantic segmentation of the world. What what is this thing? I I, I can feel something that's sort of uh, soft and gritty and so on. Um, is this a sand pit? Um, and 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 that that kind of uh, segmentation of the world into into objects and then uh, the potential to form transformations on objects, which therefore are, are actions. Um, and if you have that semantic understanding of the world, um, to be able to think of um, alternate ways that the world could be and to construct um, a prediction of, of what you would sense if that world were, uh, were like that. So essentially um, a forward simulation from a semantic description. Um, and this allows imagination. Um, yeah. there's been, there has been some initial work on that in, in cognitive robotics, um, but the robots that are available to them at the moment are still quite limiting. Um, once you have the ability to, to perceive, you need to have action selection. Now we know quite a lot about action selection in, in the human brain. Um, it, the, the, the main um, center is in the, uh, the basal ganglia um, of, the, of the cerebral cortex. Um, and um, then you, you you have to link in the uh, the emotional um, side because without having um, a preference for something, um, so without making a value judgment, um, you don't have a reason to decide. And then it needs to get back through um, the control of actions. Um, so so you basically you complete the the whole loop. Um, there, uh, the, the details of, of how to do these things, um, they're obviously you know, quite intensely uh, mathematical. Um, we have some good SLAM algorithms for, uh, for, for, for perception from, from, from passive vision. Um, we have some um, other algorithms for, for single image interpretation. We need to fuse those with the, the physical model, and then that gets us um the, the the visual tactile perception um which certainly for humans and and for most animals i think is, is uh, the their grounding of, of their reality yeah. but i think the progress of soft robotics but um i think it's i i i think if you agree uh, um do you mind if we go to these things there's too much hype in the field it's maybe uh, yes, I would say um, there, there is is much too much hype, um, and the, the the blame lies predominantly with the research funding agencies, mm -hmm. not of any one country but worldwide. Uh, this applies to robotics as a whole, not just soft robotics, and it it's caused by persistently giving the funding to the wrong projects. And so forcing all researchers to compete in making excessive claims. Uh, this is this arises particularly because of failure of effective review of the technical feasibility of the proposed solutions. 
uh, and attempting to dictate how and where advances will occur, um, demanding premature claims of commercial viability, which are almost never fulfilled, and uh, failing to allow researchers to focus on the fundamental problems without which um, solu without solutions for these fundamental problems, little of value can actually be achieved in, in robotics, either, either soft or, or other types of robotics. And then finally, uh, forcing buzzwords onto everybody in the field, which then just pollutes the discussion space. Mm -hmm. I think it's super interesting point as well. But do you think it's incorporated like politics as well in that case, because of the funding and politics and how you get uh, funding for the right project? How do you see this issue could be solved? Uh, well, I, I don't think that there will ever be enough money for uh, what people want to do. Um, yeah, there, there will always be more people who want more money. Um, I think that the basically whatever your source of money is, you have a responsibility to those who provide that money to spend it in the most effective possible way and not to keep spending it on public relations. Uh, we, we actually have too much communication in robotics. We have too much publicity, too much talking about the work and not enough doing the work. If you, if you consider the, um, the amount of time that is spent um, preparing bids, preparing um, you know, talks and seminars, preparing papers, preparing publicity, and so on, versus the amount of time that researchers actually spend um, thinking about and doing the work of the research itself. Um, we're definitely a long way out of balance in that. Um, and essentially, the people with the power to change it are the people who control the supply of money. Um, and it's therefore, it's their responsibility to, to do the right things, to, to change the, the way people are behaving. Um, and, and not to create perverse incentives. Mm, yeah, I think that's that's very important as well. So uh, I'm curious to ask you about the non-linearities because I think many of audience now may be interested in the control aspects of robotics. So if I ask you, non-linearities can bring opportunities for soft robotics like buckling. However, do you think that traditional control approach can destroy the natural dynamics of soft robotics? How do you think about this? Well, the, the, the way I think about this is that um, nonlinear processes such as buffling are, are state changes that are driven by the release of energy causing an intrinsic positive feedback. Mm -hmm. um, once triggered, such a process is expected to accelerate to completion. Um, as with anything that is triggered, there is sensitive dependency on whether and when the trigger state is reached. Um, now, the control of such a process comes from deciding the instant at which to trigger the state change. Um, it should be noted that there are also nonlinear processes that, are, that, do, that, that do not involve state changes, uh, an example of which is the compression of a pneumatic spring um, or the dissipation of energy by viscous damping. Um, and these ones are, are widely used to actually maintain the controllability in the presence of external noise. Um, neither of these types of nonlinearity non um, destroy the dynamics. They are the dynamics of the system. Um, and they're widely used to create dynamics that are favorable for control. Yeah. 
Hello? Yeah, yeah, okay, great. So I'm curious to ask you how, how, how we ensure that soft robotics will be beneficial to humanity as a whole. In, in our research, we'll be doing that, or in, in business sector, is this a question how we can make sure this really helping people at the end of the day? Um, well, the, essentially, um, this would involve um, controlling human political and economic behavior. Um, I'm certain that all sorts of people will do bad things with whatever is available to them, but that overall, the worst behavior will be relatively exceptional. Um, technology fundamentally is, it's about providing the means to do things. Um, and we do see very widespread distribution of technology in the, in the modern world. If you consider the availability of mobile phones, internet, motor transport, vaccination, generic medicines. Um, so I expect that this process of, of spreading technology um, will continue and that the benefits of new technologies will be widely available within a decade or so of the start of mass production of those technologies. Yeah. So that's come to question. What makes a robotics company successful? Because if we work in, in the lab, and we, I think we're missing many realistic aspect about the product that could so help people. So what makes a software box company successful, do you think, in your perspective? Well, yes, I, I would say that um, that so far um, there, there aren't any any soft, successful soft robotics companies that I know of, mm. um, but um, they would need to be commercially viable. And this means that they need to have a solution that they can afford to deliver for less than people are willing to pay for that solution. Um, now, some people are marketing soft end effectors for various factory robotic handling tasks. Uh, it should be remembered that um, rubber pneumatic suckers have been used since the early days of factory robotics. Um, so far, non-factory robots, hard or soft, are mostly an, an undelivered wish in, in, in the commercial world. Um, this is because tactile sensing, physical perception, scene understanding, one-shot learning, improvisation, dexterous manipulation, and safe behavior, um, all of these things are so far neither fast enough nor reliable enough for commercial use. Um, once all of these things are solved, then the situation could become very different. Yeah, all right. So um, I'm curious to ask you about the question and uh, about the market and just AI and becoming the driving force to change our lives. What do you think of integrating soft robotics and AI? For instance, morphological computation as highlighted terminology, where we can design innovative shapes, changing actuator. Can we come up with new terminology that combines AI and soft robotics? Well, I think that post COVID-19, the market is gonna be very different. Mm -hmm. um, there will be a strong market for, for simple mechatronic aids for maintaining sufficient hygiene um, to prevent contagion. Those will be simple things like opening doors and taps without touching handles at all. Um, in more advanced robotics, including soft robotics, um, the first thing is to, to separate concepts, the terminology and the jargon. Um, concepts are the ideas themselves, uh, regardless of the name that we give them. Terminology is the names that we create 
to enable um, clear and precise discussion of the concepts. Whereas I would say that jargon is fake terminology. It detracts from the, the clarity and the precision of our thoughts, um, often uh, being used as buzzwords to pretend some magical solution. Now, if you cannot say what you will see and feel as a consequence of a term, then I would say that that is jargon and it doesn't really mean anything. Mm. Uh, now, it's important to realize that the terminology is... Um, actually, hang on. can I just pause here? Yeah, sure. Were, were, were you asking about terminology or technology? Terminologies, or the naming, so, and technology as well. I think both of them is uh, legitimate to be uh, considered. The terminology, how we can naming that, okay. and the technology as well. Important to realize that the terminology is not fixed for all time. Uh, fixed ontologies, as collections of terminologies, um, fail because they, because the concepts themselves evolve as we acquire more insight. Um, this has been demonstrated many times in in medicine, for example. Um, I tend to think that the term morphological computation is more on the side of, of jargon than not, because it suggests that this wasn't already well known. It's more accurately described as designed for controllable dynamics, and it has always been a necessary part of all engineering. Um, for example, um, why the rudder of a boat is at the rear of the boat, or why only certain geometries are used for car suspension and for car steering. Um, what is peculiar is why robotics needed this restating. Um, and that is due to robotics being descended from factory automation, which in turn comes from manufacturing machinery, uh, which is very heavy and rigid for high precision control of position. Mm -hmm. If it had happened that robotics emerged instead from vehicle design, then minimizing weight and controlling forces and dynamic behavior while interacting with an imperfectly unknown um, external world um, through the design of materials, structure, and kinematics. Those things would have been central all along. Um, so um, I think that both the robotic hardware and the AI need mm -hmm. um, to get a lot better um, if we're to, to achieve what we hope to achieve in, in robotics. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, we are closing to the end, but I'm asking the question about can capitalism and socialism be integrated while making sure advanced robotics will not lead to social inequality? Right, uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit on the skeptics side here um, in terms of uh, political ideals. Mm -hmm. um, capitalism and socialism are theories to explain observed behavior or planned human behavior. Um, and the thing to remember about theories is that when a theory disagrees with observation, the theory is wrong. Um, humans have lived, science, technology, industry and societies were created without either of these two theories. Uh, what we have seen repeatedly across history and societies is you get occasionally you know, groups of people who decide that they have a theory that they prefer over reality. And this always leads to very stupid behavior. Yeah. Um, social inequality has existed to varying degrees in all societies. How much depends on the actions of the people within each society. Generally, the extremes um, have tended to produce unpleasant results. Um, so I would advise 
against um, doing anything extreme. Yeah. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? Ego? ego um, no, I would say. Uh, it's important to know that in science, you as a person do not matter. Um, it's only academia that cares who wrote what. Academia is a culture that changes over time. Um, sometimes it helps science like a commensal organism. Sometimes it can also be like a parasite on science. And it can, can in the worst case, become a cargo cult of, of pedantry. Um, there have been many times when academia held back science by allowing bad behavior from dominant characters to obstruct research. For example, um, Robert Hooke mistreated Isaac Newton. Newton mistreated Leibniz, mm. Kuvia mistreated Lamarck, uh, and Carl Pearson um, blocked the study of causality. Um, and many others have blocked science um, because of their egos. Um, we should never tolerate dominant characters or, or false modesty. Um, in science, an argument is valid or invalid, a statement is true or false, independent of who wrote them or who believes them. Um, and reality doesn't care who you are. Reality just is. Um, and in science, we set out to discover what is real, uh, what is true, and what works. I think it's a very powerful uh, statement, and I strongly agree with that. Uh, since we are really an ego-driven world a little bit now, I think. So if I ask you what you wish for humanity in the next 100 years, uh, well, I would say redevelopment of society and government to avoid a Malthusian crash. Um, we need to become a steady state population managing our environment sustainably and not causing our own demise. Uh, this is actually quite difficult because as an evolved species, we have a strong tendency to reproduce and to expand our consumption. Mm -hmm. For the for 250,000 years, this didn't change anything. Um, we survived in check with hunger and disease and predation. In the last few thousand years, we've gotten clever and organized on a scale that no species has ever, ever has done before, but not quite organized enough to refrain from running headlong off a cliff. We need to become a different species that lets go of traits that are maladaptive to our new situation. We need to get better at being consistently rational, and we need to get much better at managing long-term risk. Um, it would probably help if we further lengthened our development so that people would reach adulthood later, live longer, and remain physically smaller and more neotenized. Mm -hmm. um, all of these things are quite plausible given the development in morphogenetics over the last two decades. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask you, what is the most inspiring book you have ever read? Uh, I would say Accession uh, by Ian M. Banks. Um, it's about dealing with events that fundamentally exceed all past experience. Mm -hmm. So lastly, I would like to ask you what the best advice was given to you, was it personally, professionally, and was like a life changing and would like to share with us? Um, probably um, it was don't do it you will lose money and time mm -hmm. um, uh, and this is actually quite serious um, academia is not always the best way to good to 
I'll start that again. Sure. Um, seriously, academia is not always the best way to do good science or to create new technology. For example, there were many high-profile and highly funded teams working on heavier-than-air flight at the turn of the 20th century. The Wright brothers succeeded where others failed, most of them quite spectacularly, um, because they were self-funded. And therefore, they were free to exercise their own judgment on what to work on. Likewise, radio was invented by Marconi, television was invented by Farnsworth and Logie Baird, each working on their own funds. Soft robotics is at a similar technological and economic stage to flying machines in the 1890s. You may very well be better off doing research on your spare time. Yeah. So it's very interesting, and I would like, at the end, would like to ask you if you have any final words of the soft robotics community you would like to share. I would say study. Read into every relevant field that can contribute to the, the problems of soft robotics. Whatever you need in biomedical sciences, engineering, material science, mathematical sciences, or anything else, teach yourself to the level of the state of the art in every topic that you need to draw upon. And respect the quantity and rigor of established knowledge in disciplines outside your own undergraduate training. Otherwise, you will waste your time, and worse, you will crowd the workspace of science with the rediscovery of things that were already known. I think that's very powerful and soulful. So thank you once again for your time. Thanks so much.